Hey everyone, just a quick note here before we get started on a podcast-adjacent topic. I'm going to be launching a Kickstarter in a few days, that would be the end of September slash beginning of October, for some medieval-inspired Christmas cards. What I've done is pulled images from the original manuscripts and put together some designs I really like, and I hope you will too. So, if you're a fan of medieval weirdness, know someone who is, or are just looking for a winter card without Santa and his reindeer, please do check that out. When it goes up, I'll post the link here in the episode notes, on my website at humancircuspodcast.com, and on Twitter at circus underscore human. Thanks, everybody. Now, on with the podcast. Welcome to Human Circus. Fair to say that it's often a good thing to keep one's promises. Maybe even more often than often. Perhaps usually or mostly. It's generally good to stick to agreements when it's made. Some would say necessary in all ways. If you have given your word or put your name down on paper, then you must see things through exactly as you had said you would. But this current series is not a great argument for that type of honesty. The story of the Fourth Crusade has been presented in a variety of unflattering ways, as a kind of ultimate expression of the cynicism of the entire crusading project, as being one of naked greed rather than religious enthusiasm, or as a work of a single nefarious power bending the course of events to their will. Was it the case that the Venetian doge Enrico Dandolo was the powerful manipulator, taking the crusaders for everything they had and more? and steering violence away from his city's trading interests in Egypt? Or was it Philip of Swabia? Was he the smoking man in the back room? Was it his personal goals, or, to a lesser extent, those of Boniface of Montferrat, that had steered events from their original course? Was the Pope himself to blame for summoning up a crusade, and then tapping its resources to other ends? One theme that has struck me in putting together this series is the potentially dooming nature of a handshake. The way agreements made in this story seem cursed to develop a kind of horrifying momentum of their own, and to carry their participants along with them. The way the ominous music seems to pick up the moment terms are set, and, without discounting human agency too much in all of this, the scales start to tip towards disaster. Unless you are of the Ayyubid Sultanate, that is. Hello and welcome. I'm Devon, and this is Human Circus, Journeys in the Medieval World. A quick reminder before we get properly started. Rating, reviewing, subscribing, and spreading the word is how we keep our walls intact, and even our suburbs free of fire. And by signing up for the Human Circus Patreon, for as little as $1 a month, you ensure a sustainably defended city no matter what mangonels or boating peoples may be brought against it. And on that note, a big thank you to new patrons Malte, Derek, Aaron, and Neil. Thank you all very much for your support. And now, back to our story. When last we spoke, Emperor Alexius was scuttling out the gates under cover of darkness as July 17th of 1203 became July 18th. 
Inside Constantinople, the people of the palace awoke to their lack of emperor and were thrown into confusion. There were some who would have been bound to the now-departed Alexius and would have feared what was to come. Others would have seen opportunity in this power vacuum, an invitation to advance themselves, maybe even to the highest step. The rest would simply have worried, for their city and themselves, for what would happen now with the Latins at their gates. From Nikitas, we know that the eunuch Constantine, minister of the imperial treasuries, was one to take matters in hand, that he measured support for what was to come, and we can imagine the whispered conferences in the gardens and corridors. Probably there were many such plans being made, many would-be emperors flickering into being and then sputtering out, tantalizingly close to power. Constantine solidified a faction within the palace. He assembled the axe-bearers of the Varangian Guard, and had the empress and all her relations seized. Then, when all was ready, he called for Isaac, the former emperor. And he who had been blinded through his brother's treachery was freed from imprisonment and dressed in magnificent clothes. He was led back to the imperial throne, and word was sent to his son. In the camp, the news was met with joyous celebration, for the way which had seemed so hard now looked as if it might have been made easy overnight. Robert speaks of great rejoicing and much pomp, but in Joffre it is tempered with something else, with the crusaders rushing to their arms and armor as the news first arrived, having little faith in its source, and every reason to suspect it is but a cover for another attack. Then, as more messengers came out of the city, with the crusaders sending in envoys to let it be known that they would not be sending in Alexius, not until his father guaranteed that his promises would be honored. And the promises were big, big expensive ones, crushingly so. And like those the French lords had made with Venice, they were going to be impossible to keep. But that was all for the future. For now, the mood was still celebratory. Envoys entered Constantinople, and of course, Joffre was among them. They dismounted before the gates and then walked in, unopposed now, but passing through a corridor of Varangian guard that flanked them all the way to the palace and to the overwhelming spectacle of the Byzantine emperor and a great press of the city's highest men and women in all their adornments. Once the pleasantries were out of the way, they spoke to the emperor in a more private setting and made known their demands and their agreement with his son. And what was that agreement, he asked. And they told him. His son is emperor, obedience to Rome, 200,000 silver marks, a year's supply of food, 10,000 men for the cause, a standing force of 500 knights in the Holy Land. Such is the covenant that your son made with us, they said. And it was confirmed by oath, and charters with seals appended, and by King Philip of Germany, who has your daughter to wife. This covenant we desire you to confirm. Oh, he might have replied, darkness slipping a little into even the brightness of a day which had begun with being given both his freedom and the imperial crown. It was an onerous agreement, he pointed out, and maybe he thought a little as Nikitas would, that his son had been a, quote, witless lad, ignorant of affairs of state, and had not comprehended any of the issues at stake. However, he reassured the envoys that what had been agreed would be respected, 
and he confirmed it with oaths and with sealed charters. And all was wonderful for a while. The lords of the crusading army rode in with Alexius and saw him seated on a golden throne alongside that of his father as co-emperor, and they joined the citizenry of the city in honoring both. The joy, in Joffrey's words, was great inside Constantinople, and also without, among the host of the pilgrims, because of the honor and victory that God had given them. The joy was great, but the host would not be putting down roots inside the walls, according to Robert, because they could in no way trust the traitors of the city. Maybe that was an assessment stained by what was to come, though. Joffre has the request put in by the emperors themselves, that the crusaders camp across the strait and away from any quarrels that might kick off between the recent combatants. The host, well provisioned now, would visit the city by barge and marvel at its astounding wealth, its many great palaces and grand churches, and its relics beyond count. Some of the barons were there with Alexius when he greeted with honor the king of Nubia, a king, Robert tells us, whose flesh was all black, and who had a cross in the middle of his forehead, which had been made with hot iron burnt into the skin. They heard him relate through an interpreter that his land was one hundred days' journey beyond Jerusalem, where he had gone on pilgrimage. Sixty men had begun the trip, and for reasons that are not given, only ten had survived that one hundred-day journey, and only two were now left with him in Constantinople, where he stayed in a rich abbey. He still planned to journey on to Rome, he said, to Santiago de Compostela, and if he still lived, back to Jerusalem and there to die. The barons listened, and they looked on with wonder. The crusaders also received a visit from a sultan of Konya, seeking aid against his brother, who had taken what was his. This was actually the former Seljuk sultan of Rum, Kaikusra, who had lost out to his brother in 1196 and lived in Constantinople ever since. He would eventually regain the throne, but not with the help of these crusaders, who decided upon consideration that they were busy enough already. They had been fed and they had in part been paid, and for now they were content, or some of them were. Others thought it was surely time for them to be moving along towards their real goal. This had not, after all, been sold to them as a crusade on Constantinople when they first made to gather in Venice. Still, Alexius begged their patience, their continued presence, and their force of arms, promising to pay their costs and those of the Venetians if they would remain on through March. Alexius argued that he could not entirely fulfill their covenant right there and then, and besides, if they were to leave all that they had done for him, substantial as it was, would be for nothing. He was hated by his people because of them, he said, and as things stood, the moment they were gone, he was sure to be killed and the land they had taken for him lost. That, as the crusader leadership well knew, would also mean the loss of his promised help and of his submission to Rome, and they had, after all, agreed to help him win this throne. Could that task really be considered done? Not all were happy about it, but the crusaders agreed to stay and see things through. Some half of the men accompanied the young emperor as he moved against his uncle, the other Alexius, and Boniface, Hugh, Henri, and many other barons went with them. For months they campaigned, Robert tells us, 
conquering 20 cities and 40 castles, doing well for themselves, and helping to win Alexius control over elements of an empire without which he was never going to muster the resources to repay those debts. They returned on November the 11th, the crusaders received joyfully by their comrades, and Alexius given the triumphal treatment by his courtly followers, moderate though his victories had been. But things while they were away had not gone so well. There had been fighting in the city, and terrible fires, too. On August the 19th, a mob had stormed into the quarters of the city that were home to Italians, often ones who had grown up there, and in many cases had just recently been on the walls defending it. Rage and resentment against foreigners had spilled over, harming even those who made their city strong, and destroying churches, shops, homes, and people. Then, days later, had come the fire. Joffre hadn't been sure who had done the malicious deed, but Nikitas was not in any doubt. Pisans of the city had crossed the water and befriended their Venetian former adversaries, and, together with some of the French contingent, entered Constantinople at night by fishing boat. It was a kind of a raid, or perhaps something less organized than that, on the Muslim quarter of the city, a target for those frustrated in their desire to fight Muslims in the Holy Land. There, they had stolen what they could and torched a mosque. They had fought with the locals and with the Muslims' neighbors who had rushed to their defense. Not as many as should have, Nikita says, but it was enough to drive the attackers back. They'd done as the Venetians had done then, and deliberately used fire as a barricade to cover their retreat. And then it had spread, beyond all possible expectations. I'll quote Nikitas here in his description of what happened, and it is worth noting that his house was also damaged in the fire. For him, this was no abstract event. He writes, It was a novel sight, defying the power of description. The fires ignited at this time proved all the others to be but sparks. The flames divided, took many different directions, and then came together again, meandering like a river of fire. Porticos collapsed, the elegant structures of the agorai toppled, and huge columns went up in smoke, like so much brushwood. Nothing could stand before those flames. Even more extraordinary was the fact that burning embers detached themselves from this roaring and raging fire and consumed buildings at a great distance. Shooting out at intervals, the embers darted through the sky, leaving a region untouched by the blaze, and then destroying it when they turned back and fell upon it. The fire, advancing gradually and leaping over the walls, ravaged the dwellings beyond, and flying embers burned a ship sailing by. The so-called porticos of Dumninus were also reduced to ashes, the form of Constantine, and everything between the northern and southern extremities, were similarly destroyed. Not even the Hippodrome was spared, but the whole section towards the Deems as well as everything leading down to the harbour of Sophia was engulfed in flames. Woe is me! How great was the loss of those magnificent, most beautiful palaces filled with every kind of delight, abounding in riches and envied by all. In a moment... We'll follow events in the city after the fire. First, though, a word from Noah, who is the host of the excellent History of Vikings podcast, another recorded history network show that I can happily recommend. Hi, guys. 
My name is Noah Tetzner, and I host a podcast called The History of Vikings. It has been nearly 1,000 years since the last Vikings built settlements and carried out raids on the Christian kingdoms of Europe, and still they continue to fascinate us. From hit TV shows to comic book characters and superheroes, the Vikings and their gods are still very much a part of our world. Yes, the legendary stories, vibrant myths, and rich history of the Vikings can still be seen today. Join me in rediscovering the lost stories of history's most legendary people on my podcast, The History of Vikings. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would be delighted if you check out my podcast, The History of Vikings. The Latins of the city didn't wait around to see where the blame for the fires would be laid. This place had been their home, but many of their homes had been leveled, and now some 15,000, small and great, as Joffrey has it, had taken their families and what possessions they could. And this was probably quite sensible of them. Tensions clearly had been on the rise. There had been the recent fighting and the fire. The bad feelings naturally brought about by innovating forces involving themselves in imperial politics. The prospect of submitting to Rome. The unease at the emperor's ongoing failure to entirely fulfill their end of the deal. And then there was what had been done to make those initial payments. Uncle Alexius had not left the treasury in good health when he'd fled in the night. Heavy taxes had been necessary to pay the crusaders, and then, as if that didn't do enough to turn the populace against young Alexius, the next step surely would. With little ready money at hand, the churches were plundered. Nikitas wrote of vessels seized and melted down for common coin, icons hacked at with axes, anything of value extracted by force. And then, even more bitter, the crusaders selling their gains, or else spending them as but profane metals. It was enraging. Some in the city said the fire had been a punishment, for they had prized their own possessions, but neglected God's treasures. But what anger they did not reserve for themselves, they directed towards the Latins and their own rulers. Nikitas clearly loathed both emperors, spoke of them praying for the end of all things, these firebrands of the country, flaming in visage, thus personifying the angel of evil. And he gives us quite a picture of their days in power. Alexius took to spending his time in the camps of the barbarians, whiling away the days with drinking and with dice, his entourage jokingly replacing the gold inlaid and bejeweled diadem on his head with a shaggy woolen headdress. Isaac, meanwhile, muttered darkly against the blunderings and excesses of his son, angered at his authority and prestige slipping away in favor of Alexius. He spoke of his son's lack of self-control, his ill-formed character, and his general uselessness, and he turned increasingly to oracles, divination, and astrology, swallowing all he heard and believing himself destined to become a ruler of a united east and west, a universal lord a god-man, and with his sight restored, he was prey to streams of monks who drank from his banquet table and prophesied freely as to his returned strength. Or so Nikitas tells us. The Byzantine chronicler also shows us irredeemably greedy crusaders, laughing at the foolishness of their imperial hosts, and returning again and again to snatch up yet more treasures. Their gluttony for gold, impossible to satisfy now that they had a taste for it. 
But from Joffre, it's a distinctly different picture. The treasure came in but a trickle, always delayed, and never even approaching the amount promised. Until at last, the payment ceased, and not even the pleadings of Boniface, who had done so much for Alexius, could turn the taps back on. We should appreciate that Alexius found himself here in a difficult position, an untenable one, really. Maybe his head genuinely had swollen while in office, and maybe his recent military successes had convinced him he no longer had need of his former friends. Or maybe his situation was impossible. His Latin allies wanted their money, among other things. But even if he could juice his people sufficiently, they were very likely to kill him for the squeezing. Doing away with emperors was not so normatively out of the question as he would have liked. And there was besides a prevailing attitude that nothing at all should be given to the crusaders, even if they could. As for submitting to Rome, that was quite out of the question. In this light, it's easy to see how Alexius may have felt unable to do more than placate those outside the wall with pleas for time, while trying to anticipate the plots of those inside. In the encampment, a parliament was held of the crusading lords in the Venetian Doge, and it was decided that one last effort would be made to see the agreement peacefully resolved. A few good envoys would be sent to present their case and deliver their ultimatum, to make clear that if the emperor would not willingly give what was theirs, then their allegiance to him was at an end, and they would have it by other means. As was ever the case when important matters were to be discussed, Joffre was one of those good envoys. Three for the French host, and three for the Venetians armed themselves, mounted up, and went into the city in some fear for their lives. At the palace, they left their horses, and were brought to a room where the two emperors, Alexius and Isaac, sat on a pair of thrones, surrounded by nobles of the court. It was not Jaffre who then spoke, but another, who was chosen for wisdom and eloquence. This is what he said. Sire, we have come to thee on the part of the barons of the host, and of the doge of Venice. They would put thee in mind of the great service they have done to thee, a service known to the people, and manifest to all men. Thou hast sworn, thou and thy father, to fulfill the promised covenants, and they have your charters in hand. But you have not fulfilled those covenants well, as you should have done. Many times have they called upon you to do so, and now again we call upon you, in the presence of all your barons, to fulfill the covenants that are between you and them. Should you do so, it shall be well. If not, be it known to you that from this day forth they will not hold you as their lord or friend, but will endeavor to obtain their due by all means in their power. And of this they have now given you warning, seeing that they would not injure you, nor anyone, without first defiance given. For never have they acted treacherously, nor in their land is it customary to do so. You have heard what we have said. It is for you to take counsel thereon, according to your pleasure. And did all of this enamor the envoys to their Byzantine hosts? Shockingly, it did not. All present were appalled. They were amazed and outraged that these outsiders would speak to their emperors so, and in their own hall, too. Dark were the looks they now gave Joffre and his companions in the clamor that erupted, but they did not attack. 
The envoys made their very uncomfortable way back to the safety of the encampment, feeling, I'm sure, the prickling sensation at their backs that might turn to swords or arrows in any moment, listening for the shouted orders that they be taken or killed on the spot, and looking warily at the angry locals, who might as easily form into a mob, no matter their leader's intentions. They passed through the gates with relief, and then out of range of the walls and to safety, where they informed the leadership of what had transpired. Robert tells us that after the emperors made this last refusal to pay what was owed, Dandolo made one last attempt to speak with Alexius. What thinkest thou to do, he asked of the young emperor? Wilt thou not hold it all to her agreement, nor fulfill any more of them? And when Alexius answered that he would not fulfill any more than he already had, the doge responded with anger. Wilt not, he snapped? Naughty lad, we have raised thee off the dunghill, and on the dunghill will we cast thee back again. The way forward now was clear, and the crusaders were, again, going to be attacking the city of Constantinople. But in whose interest was it for them to do such a thing? Not that of the people of the city, nor in large part the crusaders. Only, it has been argued, in that of the Venetians, whose doge, now hit on a much more ambitious goal than throwing in against the Ayubids, a creature of the Venetians on the imperial throne. It's a point with some merit, but this idea of Dandolo as puppet master, steering the ship where no one else wants it to go, reduces the other powers involved to homogeneous units, each having but one mind and one will. There would have been plenty of people, even within the city, who would have been quite pleased with what this crisis was doing to Alexius and Isaac. And likewise, there would have been many outside of the walls who started to think about carving out something here for themselves, something just a little further north than they might have planned back in France. For the more ambitious on both sides, the imperial throne was in play, and renewed warfare perhaps a pretty attractive proposition. That winter, as 1203 turned to 1204, skirmishes between the two sides were frequent, with Joffre claiming that his side's casualties were always the lesser, and Nikita saying that the results were rather more mixed. No longer supplied by the emperor, the attacking forces scoured the countryside for food and pillaged and burned churches, homes, and palaces. Still, Robert tells us, there was a great shortage of supplies, that wine sold for twelve to fifteen shillings, a hen twelve, and an egg for two. Only of biscuit was there no such lack. Of that, dull as it may have been, they had enough for the season. The most dramatic blow of the conflict never really landed. A great treachery, Robert called it, but one that could have done irreparable damage to the crusaders. The plan took darkness, it took the right wind, it took, by Joffrey's count, seven ships. Those ships were filled with the driest of wood and pieces of pig fat, set alight and sent across the straits, the wind carrying them toward the Venetian fleet. And they do it again two weeks later, the beginning of January, this time with more ships and their prows chained together into a long burning line. But both nights, the alarm was raised in time. Joffre describes the heroism of the Venetian sailors in dealing with the threat, which he specifically notes that he witnessed. How from galleys and smaller boats, they hooked the flaming ships and labored to steer them away. 
how those not busy on the water, formed up on land, thinking themselves about to be attacked. How the people of the city had come down to the shore in numbers without end to watch the drama unfold. Their cries, so great that it seemed as if the earth and sea would melt together. And if the noise and heat, the chaos, were not enough to deal with, these spectators put to boats themselves and peppered the Venetians with arrows as they worked. Still, in all this confusion, the Venetians managed to maneuver the weaponized ships into the current, and the sun would rise over those burning wrecks being carried away without harm, save for one Pisan ship and those wounded by arrows. This would seem to have been a bit of a last effort on the part of our emperors, or maybe the first on the part of a new one. If Nikitas is to be believed, they had hardly moved themselves in the defense of the city at all anyways. Alexius, in particular, may not have wanted to act in violence against his former protectors, especially Boniface, who he had been closest to. Or maybe the two had simply lost their grip on the levers of power. Either way, power was about to be wrenched away from them entirely. And in Byzantine politics, there were no easy retirements. But first, a quick pause. In the final days of January 1204, opposition to the emperors came to a boil. Everyone knew they had to go, but the question remained as to what was to be done. Senators, clergy, and other leading citizens came together in the Hagia Sophia. Nikitas was there and looked on, sickened by what he saw. All were of the same mind, but at a loss as to who they should nominate as their new leader. They knew full well, Nikitas says, that whoever it was would quickly be killed. And he himself kept his silence. He knew the faults of men, he said. And he allowed bitter tears to roll down in his face, for he foresaw that nothing good was to come for his people. The congregation cast about for someone to take up the leadership, apparently so desperate to do so that they tried to press it on anyone of nobility who would have it. But none would. One nominee even took on the costume of a monk to escape their attention. Finally, on the third day of this, the title was given to a young man named Nicholas, against his will. And you might be wondering what Alexius was doing during all of this. He was not so isolated that he had not heard of what was happening. Alexius sent one last time for the help of Boniface, arranging, Nikitas says, to have crusaders brought into the palace to secure his safety. But his chamberlain acted first. This man had been in and around the story for a while now, and his name, most inconveniently, was also Alexius. This was the new, new Alexius, but he's often known by the name Mortzuflis, a reference to his heavy eyebrows which met in the middle. Mortzuflis was descended from the emperors who had dominated the 12th century, and he had been imprisoned under the old, old Alexius, and then freed by Isaac when Isaac had returned to power. He's credited with showing leadership and bravery in opposing the Latins over the winter of 1203-04, and even Nikitas acknowledges this, and Nikitas pretty clearly had no love for this man. He was one of Alexius's most important advisors, and when an opening presented itself, Mortsuflis took it. He shook Alexius awake with news that his people had risen up. They were coming to kill him. And this wasn't a rushed act of rashness on his part. He'd already set the table. 
He'd been the one to transmit Alexius's request to Boniface, and he'd used that information against his emperor. None of the nobility who he'd shared it with would defend Alexius now. He'd won over the eunuch in charge of the treasuries, a weak man fond of ill-gotten gains if Nikitas is anything to go by, and he'd lined up the Varangian guard on his side too. So all was ready when he convinced a sleep-befuddled Alexius that everyone from blood relations to the axe-wielders were at his door, making a furious assault and wanting nothing more than to tear him to pieces with their hands. The emperor quickly agreed to be covered with a long robe and led away to safety by a little-known side entrance. A grateful Alexius is to have softly sung from the Book of Psalms, For in the day of mine afflictions, he hid me in his tabernacle. He sheltered me in the secret of his tabernacle. But then, as the reality of his situation became clear, his lips are deceitful in his heart, and evil has he spoken in his heart. And then, his legs and chains, to me spoke peaceably, but imagined deceits in their anger. He was poisoned. Three times, Joffrey says, but it did not please God that he should thus die, so he was then strangled. The whole process an indication, I think, that Mortsufla still had reason to care about appearances, that he didn't feel able to simply throttle the emperor in his chamber and get away with it. And some writers have Alexius lingering on a little more, the strangling occurring only after other events had taken place and the subtler attempts had failed. Joffre also notes that Isaac took ill from fear around this time, and of this illness died, but it's very possible that he was poisoned too. Either way, they were out, and the new Alexius was in, and acclaimed as emperor in the palace, while poor Nicholas, he who'd had the title forced upon him in the church, was taken and his head cut off. The reign of Alexius V had begun. In him, the city now had a much more vigorous defender, and they were going to need it. Maybe their assailants didn't require another reason to attack, but they could certainly feel they had the moral high ground now. They weren't assailing a former ally. Now it was a treacherous usurper, a murderer who had unseated the person they had put in place, no matter that they intended to do much the same themselves. By this foul act, they had been cut off from assistance, supplies, and the promise of help to come in the Holy Land, and prospects for actually getting to that place were looking particularly bleak as winter closed in. The clergy, including those who spoke for the Pope, made it known that anyone guilty of such a murder, as Alexius V was, had no right to hold lands, and that those who consented thereto were abettors of the murder and beyond all this, that the people of the city had withdrawn themselves from obedience to Rome. The war was just, and those involved would enjoy the indulgences of crusade. However, some of the crusaders were going to need to take action in order to keep themselves in it. Food was in short supply, and large numbers of horses had already been sacrificed. Foraging and raiding were dangerous necessities. Robert tells us, for example, that Henri, brother to Count Baldwin of Flanders, found himself in need of resources, and, with a small body of men, went at night to a nearby city. He seized animals, food, and clothing, and made to return, but Alexius was waiting for him. This was not an emperor in the mold of the former Alexius or his father. He was not waiting in his palace. Alexius V 
had heard word of Henri's little outing and had arranged to ambush him on his return trip. But in the skirmish that followed, it was not Henri and his men who broke. It was the emperor's. A wounded Alexius fled for his life with the crusaders in hot pursuit, losing his standard and his cloak in the process. Worse, his patriarch had been struck a heavy blow on the head and lost the icon of Mary, which accompanied an emperor when going to battle. A sign, Robert thought, that he had never had the right to carry it. With those rich prizes, the crusaders were content, and they paraded before the walls of Constantinople with these tokens of their dominance. And maybe it was this victory that filled them with such confidence. They gathered to make plans, maybe also on how to actually take the city, but that's not what Joffrey and Robert emphasized. The bulk of the meeting seems to have been concerned with what they would do after they took it. This was how the loot was to be divided. That was who should rule what land. This was how emperor and patriarch ought to be selected. They concluded that all would stay to serve the new emperor until the spring of 1205, and they swore on all of this on holy relics. They had it all worked out, but they were actually going to need to take the city first. The initial large-scale attacks that Joffrey and Robert mention occurred in early April. They were a marvelous sight, and they were concentrated on the harbor walls, where the Venetians had before had some success. But they didn't work. The ships brought their sky bridges against the walls and towers, but the wind on that day made it difficult to bring them close enough. Stones and other missiles from the walls shattered the attacker's siege engines or caused those by them to flee. Joffre even admitted that they lost more on that day than did the defenders, who, to quote Robert, began to hoot and shout right lustily, and they went up upon the walls and let down their breeches and showed them their buttocks. Alexius had not wasted his time since taking power. Reinforcements had been brought into the city. Prisoners had been tortured to death in sight of their comrades. Ditches had been dug near the base of the walls, making it difficult to bring siege engines against them. The towers had been strengthened, and were better protected than before, with wooden structures projecting out and over from the stone ones, so that the Venetian sky bridges no longer enjoyed the advantage of height. From his hilltop command position overlooking events, Alexius had his silver trumpets sounded and spoke boastfully to his people of his great success. The crusaders needed to reconsider. Some would have been just as happy to let the waters carry them away to the sea. Others wanted to approach the city at a different point, further along the walls where the defenses were less formidable. But as the Venetians pointed out, the currents there would make this difficult. Instead, the dozier, one of his men, suggested the attacking ships be lashed together in pairs, so that two should be able to reach each tower. For at a one-to-one ratio, the men in the towers had enjoyed the advantage. They would take the weekend to refit, repair, and rest, and on Monday, they would attack again. They were downcast after their failure. Sermons were spoke throughout the camp, reassuring one large gathering after another that their cause was righteous, that their enemies were faithless traitors who were disobedient to Rome and God and had murdered their lord. They were, in Robert's unfortunate terms, worse than Jews. To attack them, then, was no sin, but rather was it a good work of great merit. 
The Crusaders, in other words, could go happily to battle, in the knowledge that they were on the side of the good and would prevail. They made their confessions, drove out the sex workers from their encampment, and made ready for the next day. Again, the ships were brought close to the towers, and arrows and Greek fire launched up. But the fire took no hold on the tower's leather coverings. From the wall, stones came hurtling down. But the Venetians had prepared for this, and their ships were well protected by shelters of timber and vine. It was a stalemate, and Robert tells us how it was broken. He says that one particular ship, that of the Bishop of Soissons, was brought by the waves against a tower, and from it a Venetian managed to pull himself inside. But it was, then as ever, not necessarily the best thing to be the first off the boat, and he was promptly cut to pieces by the swords and axes of those within. However, the second man in the tower was a different matter. He dragged himself in, and just as it happened just before, they fell on him, chopping away. But being a fully armored knight, he did not succumb. He rose to his feet like some 13th century terminator. He drew his sword, and the astonished defenders ran. They fled down to the story below, which caused the fighters there to turn and run themselves. They didn't know it was one armored man upstairs only that their comrades were in panicked flight, and the tower emptied out below, even as more attackers managed to make their way in above. A second tower was taken, and then more, but the men who had taken the towers weren't willing to leave them. Despite their success, they were still surrounded by their enemies, on the walls and below, and they had nowhere to go. That was when Peter of Amiens had seen their predicament, had come to shore with his men, and had spied an opportunity. There was a disused side door, no longer a door really, just the walled-up space where it once had been. That was where he attacked. He and his men hacked away with sword and axe, timber, bar, and pick, others behind them holding up shields against the efforts of those on the walls above. It was a miracle of God that they were not all destroyed, Robert says. And it sounds like it too, what with the bolts and great stones hurled down upon them in such quantities that it threatened to bury them, not to mention the pots of boiling pitch and Greek fire, too. Amazingly, they cut a way through, they peered in, they found so many people on the other side that it seemed to them as if the entire world was there assembled. And they did not want to go in. But Robert's brother, Alume, did. He'd been at the forefront of much of the fighting, and this was no exception. Robert told him not to go in, he insisted. When his brother still got down on hands and feet, he actually grabbed at those feet to pull him back. But none of this stopped Alume. He went on through, drew his blade, and if his brother is to be believed here, rushed at the first people he saw, driving them from the opening before calling on his friends outside to join him. And the emperor was close. Alexius V was close enough to make a great show of spurring his horse at them, in a kind of don't-hold-me-back-do-hold-me-back sort of way, and then fleeing to safety within the city. Nikitas's account of all of this is surprisingly similar, of a pair of knights first leaping into one of the towers and frightening off the auxiliaries within, and of Peter and his men cutting their way through a gate and then scattering the would-be defenders. But he doesn't credit Robert's brother with his feet. It was the terrifying sight of Peter himself, unusually tall and wearing a helm that was shaped like a fortified city. To quote Nikitas, 
the nobleman about the emperor, and the rest of the troops, were unable to gaze upon the front of the helm of a single knight so terrible in form and spectacular in size, and took to their customary flight as the efficacious medicine of salvation. The attackers would not turn and run, so their opponents did. The crusaders were now inside. They had made their way in at at least three separate gates. The walls had been abandoned, and Nikitas tells us that they ran everywhere and drew the sword against every age and sex. Constantinople lay open before them, its people no longer organized against them, but rather scattered, seeing to their own families, their own possessions, some burying what was valuable, others simply fleeing the city, for their assailants had never even hoped to surround it or them. The attackers were weary from fighting, though. The day had been long, and they had no wish to be ambushed in the narrow streets. Better, they thought, to wait until morning, to assemble again and to offer battle in the open squares. So that's what they did, taking food and then passing the night there, just inside the walls. Passing the night in a state of some nervous excitement, I imagine, with every expectation that the day ahead would be a hard one. For many, perhaps, a final one. Those who did manage to get some sleep woke to yet more flames in the morning. Around the quarters of Boniface, certain people, Joffre claims not to know who, while others have since pointed to the man of a certain German count, had set defensive fires between themselves and the threat of attack. And once more, for the third time since the arrival of the Crusaders, Constantinople was burning. It had lost more houses, Joffre says. Then there were houses in any three of the greatest cities in the kingdom of France. The city had suffered much, and its emperor, not for the first time, had had enough. When the crusaders assembled that morning, they found that there was to be no further fight, for Alexius V was gone. He had made a big show of readying to attack them the night before, but had then ridden in fear straight on out the Golden Gate, or so Joffre tells us. Nikitas gives us a slightly different picture, though. The emperor had gone about the city, making every effort to rally his people. But to no avail. They were done. He saw no need to wait around for whatever fate the Latins would assign him. So he slipped away on a small fishing boat, taking various imperial family members with him. A successor had been found immediately, but his efforts to muster some defense had also failed. So, unopposed, the crusading lords did not fight, rather they picked their palaces. As Joffre tells us, everyone took quarters where he pleased, and of lodgings there was no stint, and greatly did they rejoice and give thanks because of the victory God had vouchsafed for them, for those who had been poor were now in wealth and luxury. But Robert grumbles that the rich and powerful of the host straight away began to deal treacherously with the lowly folk and to show them bad faith and ill comradeship. And Akitas, of course, has an even darker view of the proceedings. The populace, he says, moved by the hope of placating the attackers, had turned out to greet them with crosses and venerable icons of Christ, as was customary during festivals of solemn processions. But the crusaders' disposition was not at all affected by what they saw. Nor did their lips break into the slightest smile, nor did the unexpected spectacle transform their grim and frenzied glance in fury into a semblance of cheerfulness. 
Instead, they plundered with impunity and stripped their victims shamelessly, beginning with their carts. Not only did they rob them of their substance, but also the articles consecrated to God. The rest fortified themselves all around with defensive weapons as their horses were roused at the sound of the war trumpet. What then, Nikitas continued, should I recount first and what last of those things dared at that time by these murderous men? For us, those things will have to wait. I'll be back next episode with the story of the sack of Constantinople, the looting, and one particular story, a travel story of sorts, that emerged from it. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'll talk to you then. Human Circus will return. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.